hours since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our teaching teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion. To which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to expand in faith, faith, hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because because they they anchor us in something something which can can hold us, us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we exist to join god's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching The scripture today is from John 6, 24 through 35. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not want the food that perishes but for the food that endures eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. When they said it to him, what must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who has, whom he has sent. So they said to him, what sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Thank you very much, Betsy. Appreciate that. Sorry, folks. Let me just get myself all squared away here. Uh, good morning, everybody. It is lovely. It's lovely to see you all. Uh, it's also lovely to see the sun outside. Uh, right? Not through three inches of haze. That smoke has really been... I've been as tempted to wear my mask outside as I have inside recently. I don't know about the rest of you. It's, uh, it is something. Uh, my name is Dan Cook, for those of you who don't know me, uh, and it is truly a blessing to be part of the team that's helping fill in for Steve Weens while he's out on his uh, sabbatical. Uh, it's a blessing because we get to provide our senior pastor with that time to rest and renew themselves and, and come back ready to go. And it's a blessing, I think, for us because there's so many different voices we get to hear and so many different perspectives on scripture that we get to hear. And that, to me, is a huge part of of being part of the body of Christ, is understanding that there are perspectives outside of our own, and hearing those and and letting those get in on the inside of us, I think, is is of uh, 
is, a big, is an important thing. So I'm grateful to be part of such a talented group of people. Uh, and hopefully you don't mind having me up here because you're going to get me for the next two weeks. Um, and we're in a situation where Kara last week uh, preached from John chapter 6. And you'll notice today's scripture is from John chapter 6. And you will notice that next week's scripture is from John chapter 6. And that's not something that we do a whole lot of here at Genesis. I'm not going to call this a sermon series. It's not. Although Kara and I did trade a few emails about what we were talking about so we wouldn't step on each other. But we follow what's called the Revised Common Lectionary here at Genesis. And that's a three-year cycle of passages that we say follows the rhythm of the church calendar. And the lectionary doesn't necessarily set itself up often for any kind of series of preaching because it wants to take us through the entirety of the Bible. It doesn't want to just get stuck in one specific spot, although there are stretches, as we are in now, I believe it's like a five-week stretch, where the gospel passage is always from John 6. So Kara preached from that last week. I'm going to preach for him at the next two weeks because one of the things that I love about the lectionary is that there's this connective tissue to it. And usually you see that in terms of each week there's four passages to choose from. I'll pull back the curtain. When you're preaching, you go to the lectionary, there's an Old Testament passage, a Psalm, a New Testament passage, and a gospel passage. And so for me, I sit down and I read through those four passages in the week that I'm going to be preaching and just wait for the Spirit to kind of tap me on the shoulder and say, no, this is where I need you to go this week. And sometimes that's more than one passage because there are themes and there are threads that go throughout all four of those passages often. Not always. Sometimes it's hard to find them, but they're usually there. And that kind of connectivity works not only in that direction, but also in the sense that there are literally hundreds of churches around the world that follow the Revised Common Lectionary. So right now, there are dozens and dozens of churches that are preaching from this passage in John. And when I talked about earlier getting different perspectives, that's what I mean, is that there's all kinds of people in different cultural and different ethnic contexts that are looking at this passage and maybe looking at it in very different ways than how we're looking at it, and I think that's a good thing. So when we can take that kind of connective tissue and stretch it out over a matter of a few weeks, I think that's a good thing too. You can sort of see how the flow of this particular passage works. Because one of the problems with the lectionary is that you can put blinders on. And you can look at this particular passage, John 6, 24 to 35, and you can see it without any context to it. Whereas one of the things they teach you in seminary is that when you're looking at a specific passage, you better know how that passage fits not only in the flow of the chapter that you're in, but the flow of the section of the book that you're in, the flow of the entire book that you're in, the flow of the entire part of the Bible that you're in, and the flow of the entire canon. Because if you don't do that, you can miss contextual cues, and I almost did that this week. I almost did that. Because I, I looked at this passage, and I had about two-thirds of a sermon written before I got a tap on the shoulder and said, no, 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 you got to do something else. Because I'm in a class right now this summer called uh, Christian Social Ethics, which could be highly a problematic term if you think about it. <laughs> but, uh, but it's an interesting class. And that class, along with several other classes that I've taken over the course of my seminary studies, uh, really, really encourages you to get out of your bubble. That cultural influence that I talked about earlier, I've grown up in a specific context. And that's not a bad thing. I haven't done anything wrong. But other people will experience this passage and this flow of Scripture far different than I do. And so it's useful for me as somebody training to be a faith leader to get out of my bubble and try to see this from someone else's perspective. And when I thought of that, how I was going to preach this passage changed entirely. And we'll get to that in a minute. But before we get into that, like I said, you've got to kind of understand where this sits in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is probably my favorite Gospel, unless I'm preaching from one of the other three. Because you can make an argument for all four of them. You really could. 
But here's what I love about the Gospel of John. The first 18 verses or so of that first chapter of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Moving into that part about being a light in the darkness and the darkness is not overcome. That section, to me, is some of the best writing, not only in the entirety of the Bible, but honestly in the entirety of human history. And I know that sounds hyperbolic, right? Because how do you, and there's a lot of writing out there. How can anything be the best? But the way that that writing flows poetically, the way it connects to Genesis, the way it connects to future events in the Bible, there's a reason that John wrote a book called Revelation. It's part of what he's trying to do with his gospel is reveal God to us. It just, the way that that all connects together to me is just brilliant, and I love it. I also like John because there's a reason that John gets set apart from the other three gospels. We call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels, right? Because loosely, and that's, I could do like 10 minutes on, on just why we don't evaluate ancient documents the way we evaluate history books today, but loosely what Matthew, Mark, and Luke are trying to do is tell a chronological story of Jesus' life. John, on the other hand, makes no bones about the fact that that's not what he's doing. In fact, he takes all those scenes from, from Jesus' life and, you know, I would like to say he plays three-card money with them. He moves them all over the place. There's no chronology here because that's not what he's trying to do. If you read the very beginning of Luke, Luke says to this Roman official that he's writing the gospel and the book of Acts for, that I'm writing these things so that you may know that what you've been taught is true. He's writing them from a very historical context. John's not doing that. John actually waits to the second to the last chapter, the penultimate chapter. It's a great word, by the way, penultimate. Yeah, you like that? Yeah. John chapter 20, verse 31 says this, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose in writing this gospel is not to tell you the historical chronology of Jesus' life. John's purpose in writing this gospel is to get you to understand that if you want to know what God's about, if you want to know God's character, look at the character, look at the ministry, look at the life of Jesus. And so he orders things in a very specific way towards that goal. The first 12 books of the Gospel of John are what's referred to in academic circles as the book of signs. And that word signs is important because it often gets uh, mixed around with miracles or interchanged with miracles. And that's not how John uses it. When John talks about a miracle, he's talking about a miracle. When he talks about a sign, he's talking about a specific kind of miracle. He's talking about a miracle that tells you something about the character of God. Jesus isn't just performing a miracle to perform a magic trick. He's performing a miracle because he wants you to see something about God's character through the performance of that miracle. That's what John means when he talks about signs. So there are seven signs in the book of John, or in the Gospel of John, in those first 12 chapters. And there's two in chapter six. Kara got them both last week. I'm very jealous. Very jealous. The feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. Those were the two that she talked about last week. And that then leads us up to today's passage. And as I said, I had about two-thirds of a sermon written about belief, about discipleship. And that's good stuff, and we're going to visit some more of that next week. But I understood that if you put the blinders on and you look at this passage and you just see it about, as being about belief and about discipleship, when Jesus is talking about looking to the things that are eternal over the things that are earthly, you know who can afford to hear that passage preached that way? or who can afford to preach it that way? Somebody like me, right? I've described myself before in a sermon. I'm white, I'm middle class, I'm cisgendered, I'm heterosexual, I live in one of the richest countries in the world. I come from a very specific context. I've never known hunger. I've never known poverty. I've always had my basic needs met. Again, that doesn't mean I've done anything wrong, 
But it is useful to understand that my lived experience is not everybody else's lived experience. Because do you know who can't afford to hear this particular passage preached that particular way? Somebody whose basic needs haven't been met. Somebody who's known hunger on a day-to-day basis. Remember who these 5,000 people that Jesus just fed were, right? And again, Kara made a great point last week that when the the text says 5,000, they mean 5,000 men. They're not counting the wives and the children. So there's a heck of a lot more than just 5,000 that he fed. But remember who these people are. They're laborers. They're fishermen. They're everyday folks just trying to make a living. And in this time and in that place, they live under an oppressive regime who's trying to tax the bejabbers out of them. And oh, by the way, the people collecting those taxes are trying to line their pockets too, so they're getting whammied twice. And they often don't know where that next meal is coming from. How am I going to feed my family? Remember, they wanted last week in Kara's text, they wanted to make Jesus king. Why? Because he could feed them. And that was something they weren't used to. If you don't know where your next meal is coming, it's a little difficult to think about what bread of life means, what eternity means, what the kingdom means. I'm just trying to get my family fed right now. And you're talking to me about eternity? Come on. Come on. Which is why when you look at this text, when you look at this text, if you put the blinders on and you only talk about it in terms of belief, in terms of discipleship, you're missing something. Because the God who incarnated himself as a human being did so in a specific place at a specific time amongst those fishermen, those laborers, those construction folks. And he incarnated himself as one of them. Not as a rich person, but as somebody who may not have known where his next meal was going to come from from day to day. That's where he he went. That's where he incarnated himself. And when he addressed those 5,000 people, before he gets to the eternal, before he gets to the kingdom, before he gets to the belief and the discipleship, the very first thing that he does is see to people's basic needs. Make sure they got fed. That's the first thing he does. So if you put those blinders on and you just talk about belief and you just talk about discipleship and you don't set it in that context, then you miss something very specific, right? Because I want to zoom in on a couple of verses. I want to look at verses 28 and 29 for a minute. Verse 28 says, Then they said to him, they being a remnant of this 5,000 that has followed him across the Sea of Galilee, then they said to him, What must we do to perform the works of God? Verse 29 says, Then Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you may believe in him whom he has sent. And this is going to bring us to our all play today. Because when we see the word works and we see the word belief that close in a verse, Protestants get very twitchy. Because we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace, Right? And yet there they are. The work of God is to believe in whom he has sent. So what I want to know is when you see that phrase, to believe in whom he has sent, what does that mean to you? What does that inspire in your mind? What words, what phrases, which images does that inspire in your mind? If you're at home on Zoom, feel free to type into the chat box, but I want to open it up here in the sanctuary first. What does that mean to you? Go ahead and shout out an answer. What does it mean to you? to believe in the one whom he has sent. This is obviously self-referential. This is Jesus. What does it mean to believe in God? What does that inspire in you? I asked a stumper. Hope. Hope. Thank you. Say that again. The possibility of restructuring your life around something else. Thank you very much. 
Mm, what's the wrong beliefs? Thank you, Alex. Will Lee at home says, follow, trust. I'm glad he said follow. We're going to use that word here in a minute. Thank you, Will. Anybody else? That to follow Christ is to believe that humanity has that chance to be redeemed? Is that essentially what you... Thank you. Thank you. I'll be honest with you guys. Coming up with all plays is a difficult thing for me. I marvel at Steve's ability to almost do it on the fly. I almost didn't even have one this week because it's just difficult. My brain doesn't work that way. And yet I love doing it because you guys give such amazing answers and often pick out of my brain what I'm about to talk about, and I love that about you guys. Thank you so much for that. So the thing about this passage, when we're going to believe in the way, if the work of God is to believe in him, him whom he has sent, I've said that phrase about 400 times preparing for this sermon, and Betsy, you know what I'm saying, I mean, I'll kick it at least 64% of the time. We're talking about Jesus. To follow Jesus means, to believe in Jesus means to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus means to emulate Jesus, and as I said, the very first thing that Jesus does here, and this is the whole thing, is to see to people's basic needs. What are the works of God is a question not only that these folks were asking, but we as the church need to be asking today and every day going forward. Because you know this, we as Christians, we love to comment on politics and social ideas. We love to talk about culture. We love to talk about those things. And that's not unimportant. We're not just brushing that aside. But the work of the church, what we are called to do is to believe in the one whom God has sent, meaning Jesus means to follow Jesus, means to emulate Jesus, means to see to people's basic needs. And people's basic needs are still a problem right here in this community today. Thank you, Pam. <laughs> that's truth, because when we talk at Genesis about we want to get involved, more involved in the community here in Robbinsdale, we have the basketball camp going on in the gym that Andy mentioned, and we have you know, the backpack drive for Ace in the City, which is a wonderful thing. We get involved with Prism Food Shelf all the time. There's reasons that we do that, and it's not just because they're nice things and we're nice people, although we are. There's reasons that we do that because that's what we are called to do. That's the work of the church. The work of the church is the work of God, and the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent, to follow the one whom he has sent, to emulate the one whom he has sent, and that means seeing to people's basic needs. We know things like there's a famine going on in Ethiopia right now. The United Nations reports that there's a serious, serious food shortage in Ethiopia right now. And that's important, and that needs to be addressed. And the global church has the ability to work on that. But there's need right here. There's need right here in Minnesota. There's need right here in Robbinsdale. How do I know that? I know that because my day job is as a producer at WCCO Radio. For those of you under the age of 30, the radio is that thing in mom and dad's car that they don't ever change. But I, I produce a show, our noon to three show, and we refer to it all the time as news and nonsense, right? Because we'll talk about news stuff, we'll talk about important things, we'll talk about COVID, we'll talk about the pandemic, and then we'll take a commercial break and come back and say, wait a minute, what do they mean jorts are back in style? What is that? What? So we talk about both, because that's how we have conversations in life, we think on our show, right? That when you're just talking to people, you talk about important stuff, and then you talk about ridiculous stuff, because if you just only ever talked about their important stuff, your brain would melt. But twice a year, we do radiothons to raise money for charity. 
In the fall, we do one for the Union Gospel Mission, which is an organization over in St. Paul that helps the homeless and helps uh, with pe folks with addiction issues. And it's a very important group of people that are doing great work over there. In January, late January, early February, we do a radiothon to raise money for an organization called Second Harvest Heartland. Some of you may have heard of it. Second Harvest Heartland is not a food shelf. It is a hub for food shelves. They partner with a bunch of different organizations to collect massive quantities of food and then get that food very efficiently moved out to food shelves, food shelves like Prism, so that they can then get that food onto people's plates. And it's not just box dinners and it's not just canned vegetables like we sometimes think of when we think of food shelf donations. I'm talking about fresh food, meat, dairy, produce. And so what they asked to do as producers and hosts is to go to Second Harvest Heartland, take a tour, see what's going on, so that when we talk about it on the radio and we're asking people to give money, we have a clue what we're talking about. And so the last time I was there was probably three years ago now, because it was definitely pre-pandemic. Don't let us near the place now. And I walk in, and it's an office-like area like any other nonprofit organization you might see. But then the gal that's giving me the tour takes me back into this warehouse area. And it's enormous. It's huge. And my jaw's on the floor because it's you know floor-to-ceiling shelving, food everywhere. They've got forklifts hauling around pallets full of food. They had a freezer section. They had a refrigerated section. It's this enormous setup with all of this food. And my brain immediately starts doing the math and saying, well, if there's that much food here, and this in and of itself isn't going to meet the entire need of the state of Minnesota, then how much need is actually out there? Oh, my word. I was blown away. And I have no poker face. I had to quit playing poker. I was losing too much money. I can't bluff to save myself. So my jaw is on the floor. My eyes are the size of dinner plates as I'm looking around because it's hitting me so hard. Oh, my word, what kind of need must there be in the state? My goodness. And the gal giving me the tour reads me in about two seconds, which is, again, why I can't play poker, and says, yeah, it's pretty big, isn't it? I said, yeah, I can't believe the need is this much in a state that's doing fairly well. How is this possible? And she says, well, not only is the need this much, but we're actually moving to a facility that's four times the size because there's that much need, there's that much more we can do in terms of getting fresh food out to people efficiently and quickly so that it doesn't spoil so that people are able to have three square meals a day. And I was knocked out. I was knocked out. Because we're doing fairly well here in Minnesota. Hunger is a solvable problem. Hunger is not a problem of we don't have enough food for people. We have enough food for people. Hunger is a problem of getting that food to the people that need it in an efficient way, getting through bureaucracy, getting through red tape, and getting through this ridiculous mindset that if you're in a position where you don't know where your next meal is coming from, that's your fault. That you didn't work hard enough that you didn't get a good enough job or a good enough education, and if you had only worked harder, you'd be able to take care of your family. That is garbage. There are people in positions that are completely not their fault, that are hungry and are ashamed to go to a food shelf and ask for help because that stigma exists. And we have to do better, and we have to get over that. And if that's not enough to move your heart, I've got some numbers for you that I'm going to put up on the screen here. The first number is one in nine. One in nine Minnesotans qualifies as what would be called food insecure. Food insecurity is a matter of literally not knowing where one of your next three meals is going to come from. At least one. That's what qualifies as food insecure. One in nine. Next number is one in six. One in six kids in the state of Minnesota qualifies as food insecure. 
If you join us out in the lawn afterwards for donuts, there'll probably be more than six kids milling around. Statistically, at least one of those six kids here in the state of Minnesota qualifies as food insecure. The next number is 275,000. The pandemic has made this, of course, much worse. People have lost jobs. People have lost ability to get to food shelves to get food. An additional, an additional 275,000 people in the state of Minnesota qualify as food insecure than did pre-pandemic. Over a quarter of a million. And the final number is 112,000. 112,000 kids, 112,000 more kids in the state of Minnesota qualify as food insecure than did pre-pandemic. That's what the need is. That's what the need is. And if we're asking the question, what is the work of God? The work of God is to believe in him whom he has sent, which means to follow him whom he has sent, which means to emulate him whom he has sent. And in this story, before Jesus says a word about the kingdom, a word about the bread of life, a word about eternity, the very first thing that he does is see to people's basic needs and make sure they get fed. How can the church do any less? The work of God, Genesis, is to believe in him whom he has sent, which means we follow him whom he has sent, which means we emulate whom he has sent. And that means we see to people's basic needs. And there's a bunch of different ways we can do that. It isn't just straight giving money to organizations all the time. Look, the pandemic has hit us all. We're not all flush. I get it. But it's time and it's effort and it is money where you can afford it. Whether it's helping with the basketball camp, whether it's helping by bringing a backpack in, whether it's helping Prism Food Shelf or Ace and City or any of the organizations that we partner with, or whether it's saying, I've got an organization that I want Genesis to partner with and coming to a member of staff and coming to a member of the elder board and saying, I think we can do good. I think we can do better. Here's how. That's the work of God, ladies and gentlemen. To believe in him, him whom he has sent, to follow him whom he has sent, to emulate him whom he has sent. And that means seeing to people's basic needs. Amen? Amen. So if you join me, we'll move on to the prayers of confession which is found on page four of your liturgy. And after that, we'll move into 60 seconds of silence. I'll read the leader part, if you can all follow along and read the all part. What do we call you, O God? You who are above all and through all and in all. What do we call you when we know you in so many different ways? Eternal one, healer, friend, give us grace to call on you. Remind us, O God, of your faithfulness in gathering your people. From dust you created us, out of captivity you delivered us, and through your prophets you directed us. Creator, deliverer, liberator, strengthen us to acknowledge our need be made new. Enlighten us, O God, to the ways we neglect your presence in our neighbors daily. But even amid chaos, destruction, and despair, you used a rainbow as a sign of your enduring love. Lightbringer, rainbow maker, and sun stiller, help us to see your brightness in those we have mistrusted and mistreated. We know you by many names, O God, and yet you are one. While we make every effort, we are not united by our own doing, but by yours. One spirit, one Lord, one God of all, above all and through all and in all, make us one.
Friends, believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Thanks be to God. And now we move into 60 seconds of silence where we ask the Spirit to come and please impart this text, impart this message on our hearts. Holy Spirit, please join us. Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any, any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscove.org.